unlike any other literary genre, drama is a collaborative art. It requires like a microcosm of society comprised of actors and directors and costumes and set designers and liners. All of these creative people have to all cooperate to create this final project. And they are all working together to fulfill a director's vision, to portray the truth of a playwright so that audiences can sit in the dark and experience what I love as goosebumps. Now, through that suspension of belief for two or how many hours the show is, that people pay to sit in a seat and watch and feel and, and weigh spoken words. All of this can be done on a bare stage in any platform of any kind. For it's that spoken word, that dialogue, the driving conflict, the major dramatic question. Why today of all days does this happen? With the recent passing of the third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, we were reminded once again as an audience, we watched this attack on the Capitol. And this incident compelled me to consider how can I use my creative skill set to reach out to audiences and open conversations on, on topics that divide us as a people. First Online with Fran features ordinary people doing extraordinary things in the arts to make our world a richer, deeper, kinder place to live. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran McGarry. I'm the podcast host and arts advocate reaching out to my listeners like you to ask ourselves as President Biden urged us in his Valley Forge speech, he said, he asked us, who are we? My guest today is Robert Viagas, theater historian, author of uh, his newly released book that I just finished reading, Right This Way, A History of the Audience. Oh man, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Francis. It's great to be here. And uh, I can't wait to uh, to talk with you, although trying to follow the president is a little bit of a challenge, but I'm <laughs> up to it. Absolutely. You know, first off, I wanted to reiterate how much I enjoyed reading your book. And in your introduction, you wrote about that, that mystical consensus that arises from that shared experience that we have as an audience. And I found that compelling. And that kind of grouping of all of these strangers can be ecstatic, like when a crowd rises to its feet, or as you pointed out, sometimes it's ugly, such as when a mob decides to attack someone of a different ethnicity or tries to invade government buildings and harm political leaders. Audience is the final collaborative component of the artistic process. And we ask, like you, why? Why? What do they get from it? So as an expert on the science of audiences, what are some of your observations on how your study can offer healing to a divisive nation? 
I always feel that people think of theater as something that happens on a stage, which is not unreasonable, certainly. But I think really theater is not something that happens on the stage. What happens on the stage is designed to evoke theater. Theater really happens in the hearts and minds of the audience. And I trace all the way back to uh, the Greeks. I, I know people don't necessarily want to hear about the Greeks, so I'll keep this short. But they believed that going to the theater and experiencing joy and exp watching people do wonderful things, watching people destroy themselves in tragedies, things like that, that was part of how we improve ourselves as human beings, that it is good for the soul. It is good for the soul, the individual, goodness for the soul of the of the polis. In those days, it was the city-states, it was Athens, that it was good for the public, the public world, to experience these emotions. They believe that just like you go to a gymnasium and work out and try to make your muscles stronger, that going to see these things and watching people go through joys and sorrows and horrors, that that exercises your emotions and it makes you a stronger, gives you a stronger soul from having had these experiences. Wow, the more I re look into that, the more I realize what a wonderful approach they had to it. It's like people go to sad movies. They know it's going to be a sad movie. They may bring a box of tissues. And just the, the, the crying, it, it has what the Greeks called a catharsis. They spelled it with a K. We spell it with a, with a C, uh, just to differentiate between the two. They a catharsis was a specific thing and a release of emotions. And I think that uh, this is something that we're, we're lacking as a country. People want to have that experience. People want to have a, a transcendent experience and they're looking for it. Some people look for it in the right places. Unfortunately, a lot of people are looking for it in the wrong places. Oh God, I know. To your point about you go to these theaters or movies or whatever, where we decide to become part of an audience. I went to see The Holdovers. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was going to be a happy ending. I knew somehow, mm -hmm. some way, it was going to turn up happy. And Paul Giamatti's character just blew me away. I didn't know how it was going to happen. And it happened. And I just felt like so good because I was surprised at how they were able to go to do that. And you talk a little bit about that in your book. Well, what interests me is that, uh, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, I, we're going to go out tonight. We're going to go to the movies. We're going to watch something on Netflix. I don't want to see anything heavy. I want to see something light and uplifting. And then what do they watch? A horror movie. It's interesting. I, I quote Stephen King in, in the book where he's trying to describe why people like to go to see horror movies. And a lot of times they want to see how they measure up. They want to, just like the, the Greeks in their tragedies, they want to see how bad could it get? And could I stand it? Could I endure it? Could I live through it? If something like that were to happen to me, how would I react? It prepares you for terrible things that happen in this world. You know, and, and, and I think there's a legitimacy to that. When they talk about a, a heavy drama, they're talking about something not that is not going to be, you know, cheerful. They're talking about something they f are concerned it's not going to have that effect on them. It's not going to, they're not going to learn anything from it. They're not going to uh, experience something. Ex once again, exercising those emotions. Yeah, I just heard that someone tried to set a bomb in an N. Gorin's, Judge N. Gorin's house. And when we go to experience horror, 
you know, how do we delineate the difference between the made up horror and the real horrors that are we are experiencing as a nation today? And how do we bridge that fictional world to the world that we call creative arts? One of the things that people in the creative arts understand that I think has been lost in our public discourse is compromise. The word compromise used to be seen as a positive thing, that it's something you don't get everything you want. I may not get everything I want, but you get some of what you want and I get some of what I want. That word has now become something of a dirty word. Oh, I would never compromise on my on my uh, beliefs. And all that has happened is we've lost the ability to compromise uh, or at least how to live with it. Now, I wrote a book called, hang on, I'll show it to you just a second. Actually, it looks like it looks like somebody took it. I wrote a book about the art of collaboration because originally I was approached to write a book about careers in the theater, and I started to research it. I had somebody that I picked as a director, somebody I picked as a composer, somebody I picked as a lyricist, etc. And I started interviewing them about how they do their jobs, and almost immediately they started saying, "Well, you know, I don't just do my job by myself. I." work with the team and we all collaborate. And the best part of collaborating is sometimes in defiance of mathematics, sometimes one plus one equals three or four or five. Sometimes you get much more out of collaborating than you do working by yourself. Our nation, our national ethos treasures the lone cowboy, the person who goes out and you know does things by themselves, for themselves, and overcomes all opposition. And, you know, that's fine in its place. But most things happen by collaboration. Bridges don't get built by every single worker doing their own personal thing. They all work together in a team. I mean, you would think that a nation so obsessed with sports would understand the need to work as a team. The book uh, on collaboration goes into is you have to learn how to collaborate. You have to learn two really important things. And I think this is something that our nation, that our public discourse really could use a little of. You had to learn two things. You have to learn how to, how to win an argument with your composer, with your uh, collaborator rather, how to win an argument with your collaborator without alienating them. Also, and just as important, how to lose an argument and retain your interest in the project. Now, those, that's very stark black and white. Very frequently, losing or winning an argument is not just a zero-sum game. Once again, working together, collaborating, which means work together, collaborate, co-labor, is something that you have to learn how to do, that your ego is subsumed to the project. The most important thing is not you getting your way all the time, but learning how to feel satisfaction, uh, even if the, the person talks you into, your collaborator talks you into doing something else, how to find satisfaction within that and, and helping them to do the same thing. This seems like it's esoteric, but you know something? It's not. This is how marriages work. This is how businesses work. This is how sports teams work. They work by doing these things. 
and finding yourself in a hierarchy. There's a whole lot of different ways to find this kind of satisfaction. And I think that that is something we've lost. Both sides, uh, political sides, say we must get everything that we want and that we must not only get everything we want, we must deprive the other side of what they want. That is, that is something that I think the world of the arts, to your point, something that the world of the arts could teach our national discourse. Because by its very nature, it serves as a bridge. I loved what you said about how collaborations create bridges and allows us to take that walk to the other side and vice versa. How does your study of audiences and the nature of audiences, how has it impacted your reading? What kind of um, reactions? Well, <laughs> Years ago, I had done uh, actually this book, this book on collaboration. We rolled it out with a big event at the 92nd Street Y. And among the people who uh, wrote essays in this book, I had my director was Mr. Uh, looking around my office. This is one of my most popular books, and it's, uh, people have taken them all. So I don't actually even have a copy in my hand. That's a pretty um, good sign, though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, I had all these big stars who came and uh, spoke. We did a whole presentation and talked about collaboration at the 92nd Street Y. And it was just an incredible night. And there were all these, uh, all these major stars. And then afterward, we had a book signing. And we were all sitting at this big, long table. And there were all these celebrities. And the line of people to get the book signed was out the door. And my two sons, who were very young, came up to me and they said, Daddy. Are all these people here to get your autograph? And I looked them right in their big brown eyes and I said, yes, they are. They're here. <laughs> so my son said to me, Daddy, are you famous? <laughs> and I said, I'm this famous. You see that little hole in there? That's how famous I am. So when you're asking me how people have responded to it, I have to say I've had some nice book signings and people have come up and they they said, oh, I own all your books and stuff like that. And it was just like, you're, you know, you're one of the 17 people who feel this way. So, <laughs> no, I, don't. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I have a large sampling. I think I think people kind of like uh, like my take on things, because you know what? I, I think that. Who is your audience? Well, they're all over the place. They're all over the place. Some of them are my Facebook friends, and some of them are people who show up at my book signings. The, the uh, It was nice to, I had a talk yesterday at a library on Long Island. It was nice to see your face in the audience. But I had a couple of people there who had come to my previous talks, and they just wanted to listen to me uh, yak at them. And I thought, you people really need to get a life. No, they're, they're, they're <laughs> lovely people. They're lovely people. And I appreciated them very much. They, I, they just like my take on things. Because you know what? I pay attention to things. I don't just let things skate over my head. When I'm sitting there in a theater and I really pay attention, I'll turn to my wife and I'll say, wasn't that a clever line? And she was like, oh, there were so many lines. I, I don't remember every single line in the show. I tend to really pick up on things. I remember lyrics. Uh, I tell people the space that most guys have in their head for sports stats. I have like song lyrics in my head and how long shows ran and what theater they played at, et cetera, et cetera, just stuck in my head. So I think people kind of like that. And even like, I wrote this book about the audience because I go to the library and I see a million books about movie stars and writers and composers and this, nobody writes about the audience. And, you know, sometimes when I go to see a show, I'll just turn around and I'll just look at the house and I'll just watch people 
watch the show. And I think that's the thing. I pay really close attention to to things. As I get older, it gets harder and harder. But I think that's one of the things that they like. They like the fact that I observe things. How's that? Yeah, that's great. The idea that art in theater doesn't exist until you have an audience. Nothing happens until you have that audience. And the last show I just went to see, uh, Sondheim's uh, Merrily We Roll Along. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting. Like when you fir- when I first saw it, you know, I don't know how old I was, but watching it this time resonated with me in so many different ways because of the political trauma that we are experiencing that happens to artists getting the contract or being true to your art. You served on the Tony Awards. I served a three-year term on the Tony nominating committee. I was a voter for more than 20 years, but they asked me, and I think it's because of this book on collaboration, because part of the problem that they have both with voters and with nominators is that they're very hard to find people who actually can render a decision, a judgment on everything from songwriting and playwriting to lighting design for they they started a, a tony award for sound design and they discontinued it after a while because they felt even the nominators were really except unless they were sound designers they really weren't able to render a judgment on what is good sound design and what's bad sound design part of the problem is really good sound design you don't notice it right you can just hear you just hear things and you hear things the way they're mixed properly but the the Tony started to go to like people who did special sound effects and things like that. In other words, sound design that really commanded your attention. And that's not necessarily the best sound design. So I had this book about all these different areas and how people did their jobs and how they collaborated in their jobs. And I think that's part of the reason they put me on. Uh, and it was very nice. It was incredibly honored for those three years, which was 2012, 13, 14. I personally think they should have me back, but that's up to them. <laughs> well, we will we will definitely put a plug on that on your uh, on your blog. Sure, I'd vote for you. Do you have, have you seen Spam a lot? There's I a, have not. There's a scene. Uh, I don't. I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a scene where a giant hand, finger comes down and points to somebody in the audience for a, for one of the jokes, and that's what it's like getting on the Tony committee. You can't like apply for the job. God's hand has the finger has to come down and point to you. And so that happened to me once. And I don't know if it will ever happen to me again. Oh, gosh. What's the last show that you that you see? The last show that I saw, man. uh, Well, one of the shows that I saw uh, recently, you're speaking of Sondheim, and I know you're interested in Sondheim, is Here We Are. I went to see the wonderful Here We Are. Flawed, but still wonderful. Unfinished, but still wonderful. Disjointed. But still wonderful. I mean, we're not going to. I've been lucky enough, I have to tell you, to have seen every Sondheim show in its original production from Follies to the present. And they they weren't having the, the amount of press that they were having in for Here We Are was very limited. So I had to break the piggy bank and buy one of those incredibly expensive tickets. And people were like, it's not even a finished show. Why are you spending so much money? It's like, it's Sondheim. We're not going to get any more. This is it. This is the end. This is we're not going to get any more new shows from him. And I have this perfect record of having seen every show in its original production. And I was not going to ruin that just for the for the the cost of a couple hundred seemed like thousands of dollars. 
Yeah. Yes. You know, let's talk about that in terms of how finances affect our audiences. Yeah, well, it's hard to get into to see shows. Everybody hears about the most expensive tickets, which are the, of course, what they call the premium seats. You know, they kind of the tenderloin section of the theater. They they charge an extra price for it because uh, anybody who buys tickets to concerts or anything like that knows that scalpers, they suck them all up and sell them at a huge premium. And the producers said to themselves, why don't we just scalp our own tickets? <laughs> that's what they that's what those premium tickets are. They will scalp our own tickets. But the, the thing is, getting into the theater is cheaper now as a percentage than it ever was. Why? Because of discounts. There's so much discounting that goes. It's like being on a, a plane. You may be sitting next to somebody who paid five times as much as you did. And on the other side is somebody who paid half as much as you did. There's an enormous amount of discounting that goes on. I'll just say uh, TDF and and many, many others. Many, many others. They're just the the most prominent one. Ticketmaster. Yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch. Um, and the reason that people tickets are so expensive is because people will pay the money. If people weren't buying those tickets, they wouldn't sell them. A lot of people are like, oh, we have a client coming in from out of town. He's got to see Hamilton this Saturday night. Cost is no issue. And that is the problem. That's Those are the words that have driven up ticket prices. People want to see, they want to sit in the best. Nobody wants to sit in the second balcony. They want to sit in the best seats on Saturday night in the center section, and they'll, they're willing to pay whatever it costs. And sadly, that is what drives up the premium ticket prices. But as a result, the other seats are hard to sell. And so they get discounted, but people rarely hear about that. And unfortunately, finances also cast a line between offering audiences a chance to see work that should be in that audience. And right. I was a theater teacher with um, high school kids, you know, for many years. Some of them, you know, never saw a Broadway show and, you know, we would take them in for field trips and so forth. And also the when I worked for Young Playwrights Festival, we brought many of the plays that were being done off Broadway and we did tours to kids that would have never been able to see anything like that. Nevertheless, even write a play about that. And that's been my mission is that Sondheim came up with this brilliant idea. If we are going to have a future of the American theater, we need to teach young people how to write plays. Mm -hmm. you know? And that's my effort. How does your work make audiences aware that it's not just the people who have the money? How can we get it to the kids, people who need to hear? I'm now focused on being an author full time, but Back in the day, I would have to say back in the day and to the present, my main credit in uh, in this uh, industry is that I founded Playbill.com. I, I was a reporter. And uh, early on, I was an intern at Newsday on Long Island. And I later worked for the Gannett newspapers and a number of other big companies. And I always wondered, why, why don't they have theater on the front page every day? They have politics. If you go to Los Angeles, they have Hollywood on the front page every day. Why isn't Broadway on the or theater in general as important as these other things? And people would just kind of laugh, laugh it off. And I thought to myself, um, someday I'd like to start a newspaper that's only theater. Although we could have a sports section 
we can have a sports section. We could cover the bowling league and the softball league uh, in Central Park every summer. We could have a, a business section. God knows there's a lot of business and show business. I said it could be just like a regular newspaper, but it would cover the theater. Problem was 12-year-olds on bicycles. That's how newspapers were delivered in those days. And there weren't enough people in one area to buy my theater newspaper that you could fill up a, a kid's uh, basket on his bicycle. And so I was kind of stymied for a while. And I went and I became a reporter and I covered, you know, police and fire and po political uh, things, et cetera, et cetera. But then the Internet came along. And suddenly I thought to myself, I don't need the 12 year olds on bicycles anymore. We have the phone lines will deliver my newspaper. I finally created that newspaper. And I approached a number of people at the time. I approached Variety and a couple of the other uh, newspapers. And Playbill approached me, actually. I was working for a company called Prodigy, Prodigy Services. They approached me and they said, uh, we'd like to create the encyclopedia of theater online. And I said, oh, that sounds great. That sounds great. How are you going to pay for it? And they mm -hmm. said, well, we thought we'd have ads like the Playbill. Playbill is supported by ads. And I said, how many ads do you see in the encyclopedia versus how many ads do you see in the newspaper? Well, in those days, newspapers had ads, by the way. I said, what you really want to be is the newspaper of theater on the Internet. And they were like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. So I started it up and I did all those things that I just described to you. And part of what we tried to do was, number one, to let people know that theater was happening now. It wasn't happening long ago and far away. Merman is gone, but Broadway goes on. So I, I focused on who are the new stars of today. The other thing I tried to focus on is how you could get tickets. A lot of people didn't know what Student Rush was. In those days, they only had Student Rush. Then they found that it was ageist, so now they just have Rush Rush. But in those days, they had Student Rush. And so anything like that, I tried to put in. And it was right around that time that Rent opened up and they started having those the lottery where you could get tickets for $20 in the front row. We made a huge deal about this as much as we could. And I think just having information about theater and not making it seem like it was something that happened long ago and far away, but was More exclusive now. And it was exciting now and had stars now and sounds you hear about how expensive it is. But in point of fact, you can get discounts, you can get yeah. discounts and it can be relatively inexpensive now. That was the greatest thing that I did uh, along those lines. And the, although I'm retired now, I see that they continue to do that. Absolutely. And they post jobs, too. Jobs, right? Actor, yeah, audition there. That was the other thing. People kept yeah. saying, "Oh, I want to, I want to work in the theater. I, how do I?" And part of the reason that I wrote that book on uh, that turned out to be a book on collaboration started as a book on careers, just to show people that being the star of the show is not the only career you can have in the theater. There's a lot of things that you can do in the theater, and I I put them all in that book. And the whole team has to work together for there to be a Broadway show. May yeah, point in fact to your audience. What has been your favorite? audience experience audience memory all right my favorite audience memory back in the this is, and i've had a lot i've had so many great audience first one i'm going to pick off the top of my head back in the in 1974 5 i was still in college a friend of mine was also very interested in theater 
he was a theater critic for his college newspaper. And I was the theater critic for my college newspaper. But we couldn't get tickets to uh, the public theater. They had a press agent there whose name I won't mention, who wouldn't let the college press in. But they always, they were really, they were breaking rules. They were, they were being pioneers. So he said, let's buy subscriptions to this season this year. And, you know, we'll just pay cash money and we'll go and see a show. So I said, okay. The first couple of shows we saw that season were awful. They were so bad. I, I, I can't describe. And we, I had to take, I lived on Long Island. I had to take a beeline bus into 179th Street, take the F train all the way into New York, switch over and take the number six down to the uh, public theater to see these shows. But we were willing to do it because we were theater guys. But the shows were so bad. And the final show of the season, I, I finally, I said to Dave, ah, and I'm going to skip the final show of the season. I'm going to skip it because if, if it's as bad as the rest of them, I'm going, it's going to be terrible. Uh, and I, I don't want to waste my evening. And I didn't like the title. It was called A Chorus Line. And I said, it sounds like a generic musical. I said, I don't want to go see a generic musical. Dave said, I don't know. I don't know. I, I heard that it was, I heard it was pretty good. I said, well, there was a pizzeria near there that we really liked on St. Mark's Place. And I said, well, all right, well, at least we'll get a nice slice of pizza out of it. He had to drag me down there to see the show. I go in the lobby. We'll skip the pizza. Not important to the story now. Go in the lobby, and there's a line of people on the waiting line. And I'm looking at these people in the line, and it's celebrities. And these are people they could, like couldn't swing a house seat in to see the show. And I thought, well, it certainly has good word of mouth. So we went in. It was the Newman. The Newman, I don't know if you've been in the Newman, but it's like a flight of stairs. So we were like among the first people who bought the subscription. So I was sitting on the aisle seat because I have long legs. I was sitting on the aisle seat. The place fills up and they let these celebrities come in and sit on the floor on the steps next Get to out. us. Get out. And the guy who was sitting on this, uh, I'm not going to say what his name was, but the guy who was sitting on the step next to me was at that time was a very well-known celebrity. And he's sitting on the dirty floor to see whatever this show is. So I thought, maybe this is going to be good. It's certainly great. It will make a great story someday. And then da -dum, ba -dum, bum, bum, and the show starts. And it was the first time I had seen Chorus Line. I'd never read anything about it. I, nobody had put any clips. There was no internet to have clips on. There were no commercials. It was just the first raw time that a person was seeing Chorus Line. You know who Tex Avery is, the, the cartoonist? He specialized in, in characters like their eyes would pop out on springs. It was just that experience, watching that show, watching all these celebrities sitting on the floor laughing and just having a wonderful, wonderful time. And it, it changed my life. And I got to know the whole cast. And I wrote a book about it. And there you go. And from one storyteller to the next storyteller, thank you so much. There oh, it is. There it is. There's my book, On the, line. the Creation of a Chorus Line. But we're going to have to wrap this up. We have so many stories to tell. I know you're working on two more books. We're going to promote that on the blog so people can uh, learn more about who you are and what you do. Here's Right This Way, the most recent one. Right This Way. And your 21st book? This is my, this is my 22nd book. I'm working on 23 and 24 now. God bless. Well, thank you for sharing such insider information. And, you know, also a chorus line is about what we do. Okay, Absolutely. going back, it's all about working together, giving your best, 
taking what you can and growing from that experience. Thank you, Robert, for being on the show. It Thank you, Francis. My pleasure. Find out more about what Fran is up to. Go to her website at firstonlinewithfran.com. This program was produced by March Hare Media and recorded at We Chief Studio Productions.